Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And the Father has to remind Peter to shut up, be quiet, and listen to Jesus. Because what Jesus is trying to accomplish is way more important than what they're seeing in this very moment. Can you imagine being Peter in this moment where God has to correct you? But also God says these words. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Then he says these words, listen to him. A lot of Old Testament themes. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses is preparing the nation of Israel for his departure, for his death. And in so doing, he says these words in Deuteronomy 18, 15. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Moses is prophesying not just of a prophet, but the prophet. Jesus Christ himself, who is God in the flesh, who will come and live among his people and will redeem them from their sins. Moses says, you must listen to him. And when God is speaking to Peter in these verses, he uses that exact phrase, listen to him. He's echoing the words of Moses himself. Now, can you imagine the fear and the terror that Peter and the disciples must be feeling in this moment? I would be mortified. I would be scared to death. Most people think that if like God audibly spoke to you, you were about to die. That was like the Jewish belief. And the Bible tells us here in, uh, in verse 6, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. That's valid, right? But notice verse 7. Jesus came up. Jesus touched them. And he said, get up. Don't be afraid. Like they're sitting there face down. They got their eyes closed. Like I don't know if, that's, if you've ever felt that fear. Where you're just like terrified to just open your eyes. And then they open their eyes to the most loving face they've ever seen. There is no angry God that's waiting to strike them down. It's the face of Jesus. The face of their master. The face of their teacher, their rabbi. And he says, guys, don't be afraid. It's me. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. And you know, like each and every one of us can probably relate to this moment. We're like, if God knew who we truly were, and he does. (laughs) But like, if God saw the deepest part of my soul, I would fall face down and be terrified. But in his grace, when we open our eyes and we look It's not wrath. It's not anger. It's love. It's Jesus. And the scriptures tell us here 
that there's nothing and no one else is present. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. The voice of the Father is gone. And it's just the voice of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The scriptures tell us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, some of you guys, you come in today, you, you tell me your story, what you're going through, and I'm like, I'm sorry to hear that. I have no way to relate to that. Alyssa and I were talking to some friends yesterday, and I told her after the end of it, I was like, I don't. I, I like to try to relate to people. Like I like to try to share a story to be like, oh, I know what that's like. And then I told her yesterday, I, was like, I don't know how to relate to that. But the Bible says we don't have a high priest that can't relate or sympathize with our weaknesses. But the scripture tells us we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Like, Jesus gets it. When he looks at Peter, he knows he's just kind of dumb. <laughs> he, can, he kind of puts his foot in his mouth a lot. But he still loves him. Jesus has lived this in this world. He has experienced hunger. He's experienced fatigue. He's experienced loss. He's experienced all the pain that this world has. And when we open our eyes, we don't see a God who's wrathful and trying to, to harm us. We see Jesus. What we see in these verses is that the disciples don't need a religious experience. They need redemption. They don't need Moses and Elijah. They need Jesus that Moses and Elijah were pointing to. What they needed was the gospel. The law showed them where they had fallen short. And the gospel was going to provide the means for their redemption and salvation. As Christians, we believe that all humanity was designed by God. That we were, we were made by God initially, but we rebelled from God's design. That rebellion is called sin. We disobeyed God's law. As a result, we found ourselves in this state of brokenness. We all feel it internally. And we're all sitting there trying to fix the brokenness in ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus does not abandon us to our brokenness or abandon us to trying to fix it by ourselves. But he came in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He lived the life of obedience that you and I have not lived and cannot live. And yet he died and paid the penalty for your sin and my sin upon the cross. So that if we will repent, turn from our sins, quit trying to fix it on ourselves, and instead turn to Jesus, we can be restored into God's design for our lives. It's not that everything's fixed, because it's not. But things are being made more Christ-like in our lives. Then we see this conversation continue between Jesus and his disciples as this whole horrific experience is ending. The Bible says, verse 8, when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, well, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Like we just saw Elijah. Why did they say that Elijah must come first before Jesus? And he says, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, 
Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. In, uh, in Malachi chapter 4, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament before we get into the New Testament. These are the closing words of the final prophet before the Gospels. Malachi writes and he says, Look, I'm going to send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. What he's saying and what he's pointing to is that one day there is, a, there is a, an Elijah coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. If you remember in the Gospels, we've seen this in the ministry of John the Baptist. He came preparing the people's hearts for the Messiah. And in this moment, the disciples are very confused because they just saw Elijah. Like, okay, so, so now what? You know, and Jesus is like, no, the ministry of Elijah has already happened in the work of John the Baptist. So what is faith? Faith is defined in the person and work of Jesus. Faith is listening to Jesus. The law and the prophets and everything points the way to Jesus. What does faith look like? How is faith demonstrated? We see this continuing as they come down from the mountain. Verse 14, the scriptures tell us here, When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him, being Jesus. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Faith is seeing God do extraordinary things. In this story, we have a boy who is possessed by a demon, and the demon is causing this boy to have physical uh, seizures. Now, I want to make very clear that this is not teaching or supporting an idea that because someone is having seizures, I think the ESV says that the boy is an epileptic. Um, we need to be very clear that this, these verses are not teaching that everyone that has seizures is, is possessed by a demon, okay? That's not what these verses are saying. As a matter of fact, there are other instances where Jesus heals people of epilepsy and demon possession at the same time, two different types of people. Okay, so we need to be clear that is there are people and, and pastors and teachers that will say that. And that's not what these verses are, are saying. But in this instance, that's what it is. Okay, this boy is, is, is being possessed by a demon. He's being harassed by this demon. And Jesus, uh, as he looks at this, he, he makes this uh, this this commendation, or he makes this, uh, he calls out his disciples here by saying, you unbelieving and perverse generation. The man's like, I brought him to the disciples, but they haven't been able to heal my son. Why? And Jesus calls them out. He uses this phrase, unbelieving and perverse generation, which again, Old Testament language, 
Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy a lot in his ministry, which to me, I'm like, I can't quote one verse from Deuteronomy. And Jesus uses it a lot. Here he, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 5 and 20. When Moses calls the people of Israel an unbelieving and perverse generation. If you're familiar with the story, Moses, God calls Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. They get all the way to the door. And the nation of Israel disobeys God. They lack the faith, and they're like, that's it. We're going back to Egypt. They did not have the faith in God to see them through. As a result, they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. One generation passes away so that the next generation will come up and uh, take the promised land in faith. And in so doing, as they're leaving, Moses calls out their lack of faith by calling them an unbelieving and perverse generation. And in the same way that we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Jesus is calling out his disciples for their own lack of faith. Like, can you imagine? Like, you just saw the transfiguration, and yet you don't have the faith to cast out this this demon. And he says, you're an unbelieving and perverse generation. The same way the children of Israel had been led out of Egypt and lacked the faith to enter the promised land, so now Jesus is own disciples lack the faith in God to work in their lives as well. And maybe that's you. Where you're like, man, if you knew the circumstances that I'm walking through right now, maybe you'd know why I don't believe. But the scriptures tell us and make very clear that we have seen enough in the person and work and ministry of Jesus, not that we have every question of our lives answered, But there is enough evidence that Jesus is God that we can trust him and trust what he's doing. Faith is seeing God do extraordinary things. Jesus heals this boy. In verse 19, after it happens, says the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus says, because of your little faith, he told them. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed... You will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, we need to be very clear. Jesus is being hyperbolic in these words. Jesus does not actually expect us to to move mountains literally by our faith. But he is being figurative in these words. And he is saying that by faith, we should believe that God can do anything in our lives. That's what faith looks like. Faith is seeing God do extraordinary things. The things in your life, in your heart, where you're like, God could never do that. God could never save that person. God could never, you know, change this person's life. They could never give this addiction up. They could never do this or that. That's the thing that God wants to do. Do we have the faith that God can do all things? Faith is seeing God do the extraordinary. But then we have this other story. And we're going to conclude with this story. Verse 22, it's like there's this break of time between verses 21 and 22 where they break from ministry and they come back together. Verse 22, it says, As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, 
the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. So Jesus is foretelling his disciples as they begin the next chapter of their ministry, this is where we're going. We are going to the cross. And then we have this other story. And I find this story very confusing and very interesting at the same time. Verse 24 says, When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and says, uh, said, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Well, yeah, he said. And when he went to the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Uh, from strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. Why is the story here? You know, like, what a weird story. I don't know about you guys, but when I read this, I'm like, why did Matthew include this in his gospel? That's just weird. But I think when we look at what just happened, maybe it gives us a better understanding. Because we just see Jesus heal an epileptic boy possessed by a demon. We see Jesus call out his disciples for their lack of faith. And then we see something kind of ordinary, but still extraordinary at the same time. So these guys ask them, like, hey, does your master pay the temple tax? Um, in their time, every year, a tax, it was it's kind of a voluntary tax, but it was like everyone paid it. If you were a good Jewish person, you paid into the temple tax. It, cared for the renovation and the cost of running the temple in Jerusalem. And everyone would, would pay into it. And so the, the, the people ask him, like, hey, does, is, is Jesus going to pay the temple tax? And I love Peter because Peter's like, absolutely. And then Jesus is like, thanks for speaking for me, Peter. Um, and he asks Peter this question. He's like, hey, like, hey look, if, like, uh, if a king has a tax... Does his son pay the tax, or does he tax the people? And he's like, obviously the people. And Jesus, again, has already told people, like, hey, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The whole point of this story is to sit there and say, like, uh, that Jesus is the temple. The temple was the place where God uh, interacts with his people. And now, in the person and work of Jesus, he is the temple. He does not need to pay the temple tax. He is immune because he is the physical temple. He is the place of God dwelling with his people. It's not necessary that Jesus pays the tax, and yet Jesus does. This makes me a little upset. Because Jesus doesn't have to pay the taxes, but he does. And I don't know about the rest of you, I hate taxes. Okay? Can I get a witness? Um, taxes are insane. I work very hard, and the government takes my money. But what we see in these verses is, is two things. Number one, even Jesus demonstrates healthy citizenship. Like, if it's not in contrary, if the government's 
not calling you to do something in contrary to the scriptures, even Jesus submits to paying the tax. It makes me mad. But even Paul tells us in Romans 13 to submit ourselves to our local governments. But then look at how he does it. And this is the thing I really want to talk about. He calls Peter to go do go catch a fish, and in the fish's mouth, there is the coins needed to pay the tax for he and for Peter. Why did he do it like this? Like he could have said, hey, there's a coin under a rock. But he tells Peter to go catch a fish. This is an extraordinary story, and it's also a very ordinary story. Because what was Peter's career before he was a disciple? He was a fisherman. So he tells Peter to go and work, just like he used to do, catch a fish, take the coin, pay the tax. God calls Peter to do, the extraordinary, to do an extraordinary thing through the ordinary means of his life. And sometimes that's what faith is. Sometimes faith looks very mundane. Sometimes faith in God is going to work. Sometimes faith in God is going to school. Sometimes faith in God is just demonstrated by, by doing the thing you're supposed to be doing tomorrow. Some of the times when I was in college, I was not a great student. I will confess. And the night before, when I had not studied at all, I would pray to God for a miracle on this exam. And that miracle never came, okay? <laughs> because there is an ordinary means for God to do extraordinary work. Uh, an old pastor used to say, pray as if it all depends on God, but work as if it all depends on you. I don't want you to take that to the most literal you can but there's some truth to that. Like, hey, as a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there's an instance where the Thessalonian believers believe that the Lord's return is so imminent, they're like, hey, boss, I quit. I'm not coming into work. I'm done. Jesus is coming back. And Paul's like, no, go to work. Be a good steward. Work hard. That's a good thing demonstrate God's goodness by being a good worker. Don't be lazy. That's a bad thing. Go work hard. Faith is often demonstrated by doing mundane things. You realize Moses was a shepherd for 40 years before he saw a burning bush. 40 years of shepherding. Sounds awful. But had he not been faithful for 40 years, that, never, that experience never would have happened. And often, faith to see God do extraordinary things is just by doing the ordinary things. Putting on our work boots and going back to provide for our families. Sometimes that's what faith is. Sometimes it's extraordinary, but sometimes it's very, very ordinary. As we conclude our time in, uh, in Matthew 17, we are reminded of this overarching theme of faith. 
The disciples see this beautiful, amazing vision of Jesus, but yet they, have, they, they lack the faith to cast out a demon. What would be said about us? We have the scriptures. We have the revelation of God poured out in our lives through this book. We have the power of prayer that we can commune with God on a regular basis. But do we have the faith to do extraordinary things? Do we have faith in God to do the ordinary things? Often in our lives, we will never see God do the extraordinary until we're willing to see God do the ordinary things in our lives. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world. 